0: Listening to the Thesis Review Podcast. I'm your host, Sean Wellick. I'm a PhD student at New York University, and my research focuses on machine learning, natural language processing, and structure prediction. On the thesis review, I'll interview researchers from around the field, centering the conversation around their PhD thesis. In addition to exploring the technical content, this will give insight into their history as a researcher, allow us to revisit older ideas, and provide a valuable perspective. how their research and the field itself has evolved since their PhD days. My guest today is Martha White, who is currently an associate professor at the University of Alberta. Her research focuses on developing reinforcement learning and representation learning techniques for adaptive, autonomous agents learning on streams of data. Martha's PhD thesis is titled Regularized Factor Models, which she completed in 2014 at the University of Alberta. We discuss the regularized factor model framework, which unifies many machine learning methods and led to new algorithms and applications. We talk about sparsity and how it also appears in her later work, as well as the common threads between her thesis work and her research in reinforcement learning. Along the way, we discuss the value of rigor and classical methods in machine learning, and a whole lot more. The thesis review is available on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. And be sure to follow us on Twitter at ThesisReview. If you would like to support the podcast, you can contribute a dollar at buymeacoffee.com slash ThesisReview. There are links to the thesis and the papers that we mentioned in the show notes. Here's Martha White with Regularized Factor Models on the Thesis Review. One impression I got reading through your thesis was just the idea of mathematical rigor. Uh, So the idea that we could derive certain algorithms concretely from just using mathematics and then prove different properties about them. So maybe an easy philosophical question to start. What do you view as the purpose of mathematical rigor in machine learning research? And do you think it's like your view on that has changed over time?
1: I guess the, I think machine learning is built on mathematical rigor. So in that sense, it has been central to the whole machine learning field. And I think one of the reasons machine learning has done so well is that when we started, when people started showing you could do all these amazing things with these models, there was a lot of mathematical understanding to rely on, to sort of explain what was going on. So there's a lot of understanding what all the core ideas, which were maybe a little simpler, maybe people had done things with kernels or with linear methods, but some of the insight was able to extend to these more complex models. So in that sense, I think mathematical rigor has always played a really important role in machine learning. And now I think the second thing you said was, how does that how does that pertinent today? Or well, how has my opinion changed on it? How has my opinion changed on it? Um,
0: yeah, yeah.
1: Uh, I guess I've, my personal opinion is whenever you have an idea or you, ha- you for research, you always sort of, what's the key question I'm trying to answer? And then maybe you have some answer to that question. And then you have to provide some evidence for why your approach answers that question or your idea answers that question. And there's two usual, two strategies for getting evidence. One is you go run experiments. You try to rigorously characterize in some subset of environments, you know, how does my algorithm perform? And the other way to get evidence is theory. And so the mathematical rigor there is just a strategy for formalizing why do I think this is a reasonable idea and what are the properties of this idea?
0: And do you ever use rigorous formulations as a way of initially exploring a problem and then eventually you have to make some approximation and then the evidence actually ends up being through experiments?
1: I've said this many times before, I'm not a theoretician by any means, but I I do put myself sort of in this middle camp where I like to do at least some kind of simple math where you write down the formalism as clearly as possible. The derivation should be rigorous in that sense. And then it's, you know, to actually apply to a broader range of settings, I don't go and do any theory to characterize why that's okay. And you're right, then I supplement that, why that extension was okay with experiments as the way to provide evidence for that. So a lot of my papers actually look like, um, here's a hopefully a more rigorous derivation in a simpler setting, and then which gives us intuition that maybe it should work in a broader range of settings, but I don't go and characterize that theoretically and then instead use experiments.
0: From what I understand, like part of your background before the PhD was in mathematics so could you speak just a bit about your background before you uh, did the phd and how you got interested then in research
1: yeah sure um i mean i started my undergrad in math and then my first year i took a computing science class computing science and math go really well together so i really enjoyed the computing science class and i just did those two degrees in parallel and then at the same time i wanted to do some undergrad research and i thought it'd be more fun to do undergrad research in computing science so I went and hunted around. There's some cool AI profs in the department, and I, I you know, I went and asked one of them, would they do research with me? And then we did. I did research in the summer for a few years in undergrad, and you know, AI is amazing. Math and AI also go together very well. So I just sort of continued from there. But I, I do, I do appreciate that I got to do my undergrad in math because I think that sort of for, more formal education in math has been very helpful for AI, for my research in AI.
0: Did you have a? favorite type of math during undergrad? And was it necessarily like the same math that you would use in machine learning?
1: I've always liked the math that's all about understanding function spaces, you know, like understanding how functions change over time. um, You know, what are the properties of different function spaces when you look at manipulating functions within those spaces. So I guess I've always been fascinated by functions and dynamical systems.
0: Some of the things we'll talk about today then probably ended up tying in with just the interest that you had in like the pure mathematics at what point did you decide to so you're doing research and then what point did you decide that you want to do a phd then
1: um i guess that was a little bit random because i I mean after my undergrad because i've been doing research in my undergrad it's very common in canada to first do a master's so i did a master's and by the end of my master's i was wondering should i go into industry now or should i do a phd and uh, honestly, I didn't make the decision, like I wholeheartedly definitely want to go into my PhD. My advisor said, you should do a PhD, you'd be good at it. And I thought, okay, that's what I'll do then. It's not nothing any more exciting than that.
0: <laughs> I see. And then um, as far as like research topics, hopefully all the listeners have read your thesis. So it's titled, <laughs> <laughs> uh, so it's titled Regular- regularized factor models. Did you know that you want to study this area going into the PhD?
1: No, I had not at all, actually. Um, I had started, to me, a PhD is about, uh, in my PhD anyway, what I really wanted to do was learn about many different things. So I worked on lots of different projects. I mean, in my PhD, I worked on reinforcement learning. Um, I also worked on these things, which had nothing to do with reinforced learning, which is one of the reasons why after my PhD, actually, I continued more in reinforced learning, since I had already done some amount of my PhD as well. So really, the way that this topic arose is just, there's all these beautiful problems in machine learning, and I would work on, on whichever one someone would pitch to me. So someone said, this is this cool problem. And I say, that is a really cool problem. And then I wanted to work on it. And at, by the end of four, four years, I thought, well, I have to write a PhD. And fortunately, there was enough of a common thread amongst all the things that I had done, mostly because my advisor actually had a common thread amongst the things that he was doing, that I was able to write a PhD about it. So I didn't start off at the beginning saying, I really want to work on unsupervised learning and matrix factorization. Um, but that is a lot of what I worked on. And I was really happy actually to work on unsupervised learning and semi-supervised learning because all of that stuff is all very related to representation learning. And I think it gave me a good understanding about some of the more basic strategies for representation learning that I then kind of took with me after the PhD.
0: So, yeah, that was that was one thing I was going to ask because what you said, like most of your work now is more focused on reinforcement learning. Um, but it sounds like you were already starting back then to kind of do them in parallel.
1: Yeah, that's right. Exactly. Well, the two the strategies were very different. Like, the the unsupervised learning stuff is very much, you know, here's a batch of data. It's not very online. Um, it's more about understanding structure in data or, like, you know, extracting latent factors or something like that. And that doesn't really match much what's talked about in reinforced learning. There, everything is much more about online. You care about the control problem. But in the end, the representation learning component of unsupervised learning clearly has an important role to play in reinforcement learning.
0: I see. I see. So that might be the common the unifying thing is the representation learning. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Or that's, or at least the only part that I took for my PhD that was helpful, particularly for RL.
0: And yeah, I would think that especially like the style of the thesis is like very mathematical and that probably gave you like a really firm foundation.
1: That's probably too strong of a statement that it gave me a really firm foundation. I think uh, I'm every day. I wish I knew more about the math and machine learning. Cause there's just a lot to know. Um, mm. But I I did appreciate learning all that stuff about unsupervised learning. It was helpful. And I enjoyed it.
0: Yeah, I guess like one thing we do on this podcast is to, uh, you know, like go through the thesis and then maybe try to draw sometimes loose, sometimes concrete connections with like things you're interested in now. So first, like what is a regularized factor model?
1: Right. Um. The, so this is a name that I gave to these models because I never knew exactly what to call this larger family of models. So a simpler um, name is that it's a family of matrix factorization problems. Okay, so regular factor models are, first you have a factor model which says you're going to take your data matrix and you're going to factorize it into two other matrices that are going to, that are usually for example lower dimensional or they might have higher inner dimension that is sparse. And the goal is that you're extracting these latent factors that read us, that describe that data well. So if you, whenever you find these latent factors, you find some factors that if you were to linearly weight those would recreate the data that you see. So that's where the word factor comes in, into factor model. And then the word regularized comes in, um, where in addition to saying, I want to find what these latent factors are, you also put a regularizer on those factors to get them to have certain types of structure. So the types of regular factors models that you have seen before, of course, is something like PCA, where um, you're going to take your data matrix. You're going to factorize it into, let's say, two different matrices. Um, one of them corresponds to some coefficients, and the other ones corresponds to the, sorry, one of them corresponds to these like latent factors that tell you the dimensions of maximal variation. And then you're sort of weighting those to recreate the data. And the regularization there would be that you would regularize this matrix of factors with something like an L2 regularizer to encourage it to pick as small number of factors as possible. Mm-hmm. And then another one you maybe have seen is something like sparse coding, or again, you're going to take your input vector X, like maybe I should make it less about matrices, more about inputs. Like I'm going to input an image or I'm going to input some kind of usual input that you have in machine learning. And then you want to figure out, um, you have a basis matrix and those are your factors. And then you're going to weight that basis matrix to recreate that input vector. So you're just going to do a dot product between a basis matrix and some, what I'm going to call like a representation of the coefficients on those bases to then recreate that input. And now we're going to to want to have different constraints on what that basis looks like. So it could be a lower dimensional basis. It could also be a higher dimensional basis, but very sparse. So sparse coding was something that was um, reasonably popular before, where you wanted to try to figure out what is this sparse basis Uh, you know, I'm going to have a larger dictionary or basis that I could select from. And now I'd like to know, you know, I only want to pick three of those to recreate some information about my pixels or about my input. So you would have these coefficients that are weighting that basis where most of the coefficients are zero. So they're sparse and only a small number of them are active. And then, you know, those are the ones that they're essentially selecting the dictionary items that you're going to linearly combine to produce your input.
0: Yeah, like how did you get interested in these specifically, like you mentioned like your advisor was working on these types of things, uh, but like at the time, was this kind of the state of the art? Like a lot of the research community was looking at these types of models?
1: Yeah, it's true. Matrix factorization was a big de- was a bigger deal before. And you know, unsupervised learning is, I, I would argue actually still a pretty important problem in that it is not too uncommon to ask, uh, I know I have this big, big data matrix. I just like have a lot of data And now I want to extract patterns or structure from that data. So, for example, principal components analysis or factor analysis, which is very related, are both matrix factorization things that try to extract these factors. Uh, And, you know, let's say scientists use it to try to understand properties of their data. They might want to know, what are the underlying causal factors that explain my data? And they might try to use these kinds of factor models that are relatively simple and interpretable in order to, you know, in order to analyze their data. So in, in that sense, um, they continue to be somewhat popular in a larger group of people. You know, I like you, I guess you probably heard things like latent Dirichlet allocation or um, right. PCA, like there's this larger family of models um, that, that continue to be used for their interpretability and their simplicity. And so they were more popular in machine learning before, especially maybe when um, there was a, maybe a bigger focus in the past on, on theoretically characterizing models in machine learning there was it was always very fad based i think maybe machine learning but it was maybe more focused on these kind of simpler models you could say something about and then i think it became more inclusive of demonstrations of more complex models that were less understandable so that sort of started taking a bigger role in machine learning but um so i think these matrix factorization models were of more interest before partially because they actually could produce some interesting solutions. Like they were able to extract this, this complex nonlinear structure in the data and you could say theoretical things about them. They were interpretable. Uh, so there is, there, they were sort of in this nice mix between uh, the nice mix between sufficiently complex that you could do useful things with them, but not that complex, but sufficiently complex, you could do some useful things with them. Um, but hard enough that there were still lots of open questions to understand, like, you know, what are the, optimization properties of these models what kinds of things can they learn and represent so they were sort of an it was in a nice space where it's tractable but still interestingly difficult
0: right i see maybe there's like some underlying trade-off i don't know if this is true in general but between like complexity of maybe the things that you could represent with the method and then like how much we currently understand it and that might play into how much we could then interpret the method because if it's like too complex then we might trade off that ability to have some interpretability.
1: Yeah, that's right. That's right. And especially in the sciences, interpretability is particularly important.
0: Yeah, like uh, another thing that comes across is this idea, especially in the introduction, is like this idea of unification. Uh, So it seems like one goal of the thesis is to use this then regularized factor model framework to characterize like all these different algorithms. Could you just talk a little bit about that? Was that... Well, yeah, one, just like the idea of unification. And then two, I'd be interested in the idea of like, do you work on a lot of separate things and then unify? Or did you actually go in with a plan to unify?
1: Yeah, okay. So for unification, um, funny enough, it's always been given to me as advice not to spend too much time unifying because the effort is high and the return is low. But there is just something elegant about unification. I mean, unification is In some sense, what we're always trying to do for ourselves, we're trying to go and read about all the literature out there and extract underlying themes amongst that so we can make sense of the world. So did I go into it wanting to unify? Um, I guess naturally, most work that I go to, I'm trying to do some kind of unification of ideas, but maybe there isn't always Mm -hmm. explicitly a goal to go do that unification. When you start trying to solve a problem, you end up reading and you start seeing these common threads. And then sometimes there's enough common threads that it makes a lot of sense to talk about that unification. So for this, there was a lot of reading about unsupervised learning, lots of different strategies, and we were by no means the first ones that were noticing the similarities amongst all of these different methods. So there's already, you know, if you know, in the thesis I talk about how they, this this group of papers looked at how all these methods are related, and you know, people have noticed how PCA and um, k-means clustering and things like that are related, and so then this was sort of just maybe making that umbrella even a little bit bigger because there's always new knowledge that gets introduced. So those methods are maybe less focused on what happens when you add in a regularizer as a way to expand this set of models. So we sort of took this extra step where now I recognize that we add this regularizer, we can sort of reduce some of the constraints on this factorization and it kind of broadened the class of models and allowed us to continue that unification started by others.
0: I guess some people give you advice to maybe not choose to do the the unification, but um, I agree with you that intuitively it seems like unification is very valuable. Like, Unless we unify at some point, things are going to become too scattered for us to to kind of have a conceptual framework for. So do you think that this is something about somehow the uh, incentives of research or or something like aren't aligned with this style of of research?
1: Right. Sort of like, why have I been given that advice and why am I repeating it? is uh there's there's sort of this important distinction about why are you unifying there's there's always a risk that it's always our goal to say well does this thing look like that other thing because it's so much easier for us and sometimes the answer is no those two things are just different ideas we should keep them separate and we shouldn't try to unify everything so there ends up being i think this tension where if you try to unify too much then you end up making something way too general anyway and and then at that point it has not become very useful I think that's why sometimes it's good to stay away from this, our natural inclination to simplify everything down into something that's more interpretable for ourselves, because then we lose the subtlety of the distinctions between things. But there are other times where, you know, a, a topic has just been around for long enough that people go off and they come up with very similar ideas without knowing that they're coming up with similar ideas. And there's different names for many different things that are kind of related to each other. And that, I think that kind of naturally happens when, ideas are in the ethos you know you always hear about the fact that people independently come up with the same idea at the same time just because kind of that idea is ready it's like all the knowledge is there for someone to easily recognize the connection and and to make that idea so um I think one of the reasons unification can be good is that that you you have this sort of recreation or very similar ideas made with a bunch of different names and it until someone creates all those things, you don't realize what the underlying theme was. And that's where the unification comes around and makes it easier to talk about this more general idea that you couldn't tell until you saw many examples of it, in a sense. So like I guess one example from the thesis is the fact that so many different unsupervised learning approaches can just be thought of as kernel PCA. Um, and some of those were just created separately because they were good ideas, like they're sort of intuitively made sense. I can look at how points are related on a graph and I'll have Laplacians and stuff. And until someone created that idea, it wasn't as obvious how it was connected to some other idea. And then afterwards, someone came around and said, hey, notice these are all just kernel PCA. And there that unification made a whole lot of sense. And the ideas need to be generated first. Um, So I guess my point is that unification isn't always pertinent. And it it's too naturally towards our bias to want to unify things So you have to be cautious to say, am I just doing this because I wish it was true? Or is it really true? And is it Am I not losing too much by trying to unify?
0: Yeah, 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 I see. Yeah, that makes sense that the uh, abstraction that you introduce might either be kind of lossy or it might even be more complicated than the original thing that you're setting out to simplify. Yeah, 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 that's (laughs) That's a good point.
1: More complicated thing could happen, yep.
0: Yeah, so then my kind of high-level view of how this is structured is like, uh, you first like define the regularized factor models and then you talk about like how to formalize problems as regularized factor models and then how to solve them with like different optimization methods. If you could pull out like the main parts of, of what you're proposing here, like I think one would be this forward and reverse connection.
1: Yeah, sure. Okay, so that was the main the main um, ideas here. I guess one of the, maybe here you could even start off by saying why was it useful to make a unification? In this case, it was sort of a, starting from the end. We we took some subset of problems, like um, like these regularized PCA-like things, and we started there noticing that we could reformulate them to make them a convex optimization problem, even though they started off as a non-convex optimization problem because you had these two factors that interact, they multiply each other. And so um, the direction actually goes more from that side. We noticed this, this, con- this nice convexity property that we could start we could, we could do a convex reformulation, which means we could solve those problems and get the global solution, which is cool. Um, and so that, that is important, but then it's restricted to a small group of models. But by then recognizing that there's this larger group of models that includes all these special cases that people care about, we can start bringing this insight about convex reformulation to a larger group of problems. So the goals here for the unification actually wasn't as much just to unify these methods under one umbrella because it's easier to think about. It was to unify them under one umbrella where we could use this convex reformulation to tell us us how we could solve these problems that you might care about in a a new way, I guess, a way that has nice theoretical properties. So that's where the thesis starts off by saying, here's what a regularized factor model is, here's why you should care about these models. It includes many different subcases that you would care about. And now here's these cool theoretical properties of this class of models where we know that we can solve them globally.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's a good point. So yeah, it's not just about simplifying, but then you actually do go on to then use this uh, framework that you've developed, this unification to then go like solve new new things. Right. If we could maybe go into the details, uh, hopefully all the listeners will, will uh, stay with us. So, so like for this convex reformulation, maybe we could talk, break it apart you kind of talk about these two different steps, like relaxing this constraint. And then I thought this idea of this like induced norm was really cool. If you want to like go into the the details of those or just talk about like how you came up with this solution or this idea of doing this convex reformulation.
1: Right. Um, well, I'll at least give the credit where credit is due. I'm pretty sure it was Dale, my advisor, who actually came up with it. And then I just got to go along for the for the insights. But but let me tell you why it matters today, maybe. Maybe that's why it's useful. So um I'll, I'll just say what the why the relaxation matters. Okay, so the objective starts or this uh optimization problem starts off as saying you have to find these two factors. Let's just call them D and H. Okay, so you have to go, you know, solve some optimization problem, or you alternate between these two things, and you could get stuck in local minima. And then the convex reformulation says, um, if we could just jointly optimize for the product of these two variables. So in these factor models, in the end, you're always asking, take some matrix, factorize it into a D times H. The thing that makes it non-convex is the fact that you independently take this D and H and you're, and you're updating them with gradient descent. And since they product each other, you have this non-linearity. So it's not like a what we're, sim- what we're used to say for like linear regression where we know things are convex. Anyway, so this product is what causes the problem. So if you could just directly optimize for the D times H, and then go find the optimal solution to your problem, and then figure out how you could extract the D and H out of that optimal solution, then, then things would be great. So that's sort of the, the key idea. Let's directly solve for um, the D times H, and then in some cases, we'll have a smart strategy to go back and re- extract those factors. And in some cases, actually, you didn't even care about the factors. You just wanted the approximation created by the factors.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Okay, so, so the reason that... The relaxation was important. There's sort of two important steps for this, doing this. One is when you take a matrix and you want to factorize it. The issue that you get is if you have your D and your H and they have a very small inner dimension, then um, you're sort of likely to get stuck in local solutions. So that's sort of the intuition because it's a very hard problem. You're going to get stuck in these, these. Local, like you don't have a lot of space to move in your optimization surface. I don't know how to describe it better than that. But if you were allowed to make that inner dimension bigger, let's say you can make it like quite big, you have all this space. You have this much larger optimization surface in terms of dimension where you can move very easily in that space to get down to a better solution. You don't sort of get stuck constantly by locally saying, I couldn't. I only have those, let's say, two columns in my matrix. Locally, it would be hard to change them to get somewhere better. But if I had 100 columns in my matrix... Maybe I can't change the first two columns, but I could change like, you know, 10th and 12th columns. and I can sort of move again in my space to try to continue to descend on my surface. So if we could increase that inner dimension, then that could let us optimize more easily. And, but now we've, we aren't doing the thing we want it which is to get a lower dimensional thing. And that's where the regularization comes in. So you, you're allowed to, inc- the relaxation says make the inner dimension bigger. And then the regularizer is going to encourage that the solution that you eventually find is as small as possible anyway. So you're allowed to move in this in this space until you get to a point where the solution is going to have many of those columns are going to be set to zero. So that that was the idea of the relaxation. Is the regularization encourages smaller numbers of columns for the final solution, but the bigger allowing a number of bigger more columns lets the optimization eas- be easier, so that it's more likely you can get to a global solution. So I think that's actually maybe one of the most important insights from this convex reformulation that um, this this idea that you need to you need to expand this inner dimension and use regularization rather than just directly constraining your variables.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. Yes, so what you're saying is you you relax the, the K and you let the optimization figure out what it should be. And this seems like maybe a loose connection or, or I don't know, but it seems kind of similar to an autoencoder where if you have no constraint on the autoencoder, then it'll just organize the latent space in some crazy way, and perfectly reconstruct things, but then the regularization is going to like pull it back into something more reasonable.
1: Exactly, an autoencoder is a perfect example because, in fact, an autoencoder mm-hmm. um, it can be seen as one of these models. It really is take is doing this factorization. So, like a, a li- for example, a linear autoencoder is equivalent to a PCA solution. Linear autoencoder. Then once you start adding nonlinearities, the the connection is less obvious, but. Still, the fact that that connection exists in the linear case does tell you that it's sort of trying to do the same thing. That hidden layer in an autoencoder is trying to find these factors. And if you just allow it to recreate the input with exactly the same number of factors, well, then it's not forced to find any structure. It can just completely recreate that that input. Um, But then if you were to allow that hidden layer in an autoencoder to be bigger, and then instead now you said, I'm going to put a regularizer on that to constrain it. Like that regularizer is going to say, try to make that layer as sparse as possible. Or you know, heavily put an L2 norm on it or something, then it can't perfectly recreate X anymore because now it's balancing these two things. It has to try to make that norm as small as possible and recreate X.
0: And then then once you're able to do this, I guess the idea was that you get a convex objective and then you're able to get like a global solution.
1: Right. Yeah, so the, 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 if once you do that convex reformulation, then um, it's maybe more reasonable to imagine that it would even be possible to do this And then further there, you have to go figure out, okay, now But the regularizers were on the D and H separately. So now I need to figure out what's the induced regularizer that would be on the joint variable D times H. And if that induced regularizer is convex, then the optimization problem in terms of of that multiplication of D times H would now be a convex problem. And so you you go just do gradient descent, convexity is awesome. You go find the global solution, and then you go extract the D and the H from that global solution. So the difficult part for this work was very much, how do we go get that induced norm? So a a nice result is that we know that that induced norm exists. Uh, We just, in most cases, have no idea what it is. So actually follow-up work from this, um, not just for myself, but other groups are looking at it as well, was to sort of use this characterization that said we know the induced norm exists to identify that this class of models class of problems is actually maybe easier. So later, what we actually started finding was, you know, screw the induced norm. You don't even have to go find it. If you just optimize directly with D and H, you will actually often, most of the time, you'll find you get to the global solution, which was sort of a surprising result. That's not a result I talk about in my thesis. But later, we started realizing a lot of the time you do go and actually get the global solution. And it seems to be that there's just this connection to the between the fact that the ex- existence of a convex reformulation seems to suggest that directly optimizing with the D and the H, even though that itself is not convex, often gets to local global solutions. So we have, for many years now, been trying to get a paper completed that proves that this is true, that if you have this property, then it really strongly identifies that theoretically, you'll know you're going to get to a global solution by directly optimizing for the D and H. We had lots of experiments to show that we found it to be true for lots of different of these regularized factor models. Um hmm. but constantly get stuck on the proof. So it's still a working paper on archive. Even now we're still at updating it. It's been multiple years. It's been an endeavor.
0: Well, I can if you send me the, the link I could put in the show notes. People can <laughs> that's
1: good. <laughs> Check it. I'll, I'll it send out. you the link once we've updated the paper. We have some new updates for it, so
0: I see, yeah. Before we go into the details of the different applications, we could um, I don't know, take another like philosophical break. Sure, yeah, that's and um, <laughs> and uh, one thing that I started thinking about, like reading reading this thesis is, especially for someone starting out today, I mean, it obviously like depends on, on what they're working in, but they might only care about or use deep learning. Mm-hmm. Uh, yet like here, it seems like there's starting to be a set of methods that we're viewing as like classical like PCA, CCA, things like this. And Personally, to me, like intuitively, it still seems very important to learn those things. Like, how do we, how do we, like, make the case that these more classical methods are still important to learn and important to understand? And maybe like a concrete question would be like, if we were designing a machine learning curriculum, how do we decide to put these classical methods in?
1: Right. Um, so the way I like to think about it is that some of these classical methods are doing what we are trying to do with representation learning and deep learning. So what, what are both of these classes of methods doing? Uh, you're taking like an input X or an X and a Y or something like that. And you're asking, how do I transform this into some new form that is gonna be more amenable to learning or, or extract some causal factors and causality in deep learning is becoming a big thing. So I keep mentioning that one. So in that sense, the goals are very similar. And the way I like to think about it is that the tech, the tools are just different. Um, so let me, let me give you an example. Like, imagine you took a neural network and on the last layer, you know, you're going to, you're going to predict your targets. y as a common thing? And you're also going to try to predict your, uh, inputs X. Like you're going to add an this extra auto-encoder feature, extra auto-encoder targets as like an auxiliary loss or something like that. Let's imagine totally a normal thing to do. Um, I'm going to call that a supervised auto-encoder. Cause I, other people have called it that, including myself. So uh, when, if you think about what this last layer is doing, you're trying to learn in this last layer, a set of features where the input's going to be X by the way, but you're going to try to learn a set of features so that those features let you predict X very well and let you predict Y very well, or like let you reconstruct X well and predict Y well. And then in, in methods like C, in the way that you do produce that layer is to use a neural network. So there's this function approximation, multiple layers, that gets you to this final layer that are these features. And now the difference in things like sparse coding or CCA or PCA is that the strategy to extract these features, which I'm going to call like factors, features and factors are very similar to each other, is, is that you're going to use these other strategies. So for example, sparse coding is going to say, go find for me a vector so that if I were to linear, let's imagine I'm going to do linear, uh, I'm going to do regression on this last layer. Let's not talk about classification for a second. So let's imagine we're doing regression. Then I want to go find this big vector let's say a sparse vector where there's only a small number of features active in my last layer, so that when I linearly weight those features, it's going to produce for me X and it's going to produce for me Y. It's a totally reasonable thing to ask of my neural network. And that's exactly what sparse coding is doing. It's trying to exactly find this sparse vector of features or factors or whatever you want to call them, that when linearly weighted, which the linear weighting is that basis matrix I described, would produce for your X and your Y. So then there's some insights that can be had from sparse coding, like maybe you can take some of the regularization strategies that were used in sparse coding to help encourage these properties on this hidden layer, or maybe insights from factor analysis tell you um, how confident can I be about even understanding anything about the factors I extract, or what, what have they done in factor analysis to make generalization better, or, or things like that. So that whole community, the unsupervised learning community, And the semi-supervised learning community, and like the co-embedding community, I'll call that one another one. Those are all very related to each other, and they've been thinking about this structure um, structure question for a very long time. So hopefully, those insights about understanding transformations of data could help us better understand what we should expect from our neural networks. Right. And then the cool thing about neural networks is just that it gives us this whole different way to produce that feature vector. You know, now you have these multiple layers, you have depth and abstraction. So it's really just a, I would argue, a, maybe a nicer function approximation type. But our goals are not so different.
0: Yeah. So the the goals are similar. The kind of insights can be shared. I think, like you were saying before, maybe the fact that they're more simple leads to a kind of deeper understanding, and those things might be useful to learn. And yeah, I think RL is an, is another good example of this, where you could kind of learn a lot of RL and then just substitute the function for a function approximator and that function approximator could be a neural network, but like the underlying, a lot of the underlying ideas are kind of agnostic to that.
1: Right. That's definitely true in RL. Yeah, totally agree.
0: Yeah. So then maybe going to some things that you then use this framework for in the thesis. So like the algorithmic development, one thing I, I think that you've mentioned a few times now is this idea of sparse coding. Uh, so you actually did something with sparse coding in the thesis here. Did you maybe want to talk through that and how you got interested in in that?
1: I mean, I guess maybe there's something sort of limiting about about the idea of taking an input matrix or like like an input vector and just finding a lower dimensional representation. Like that kind of compression is useful, but it's. Um, it's not only so useful for producing useful transformations. But sparse coding is kind of the opposite to me. To me, sparse coding is more like what you get with a neural network. It's you make this big expansion, that big expansion has many different solutions, and it becomes like a nonlinear function approximation in that sense. Because you, you have your input X, you have this big, you're gonna transform into this big vector. There's many different possible solutions where you could have taken a big vector and literally weighted something to produce the input. Like that's unconstrained. But now if you add this constraint that you want it to be sparse, well now you can almost start like bucketing inputs, which is a very nonlinear operation. Or you can have these like overlapping features where if these two inputs are sort of similar to each other, they'll have some small subset of attributes active at the same time. So for me, when it came to regularized factor models, the most promising way for us to actually use it to do representation learning is sparse coding because it has this nice non-linearity property. So I, of these models, that's the one I've always been the most interested in for that reason. Actually, I did use it for reinforcement to try to learn sparse features. I should maybe mention why I think sparse features are useful too. Um, yeah. I guess it's just maybe it makes sense to me that one thing is that when you're learning in an incremental way, it can be helpful to have the locality of that sparsity gives you. So what I mean by that is... Um, you're only ever updating a subset of the weights for certain features, and that can kind of be a more stable thing to do when you're learning incrementally like you do in RL. But there's also sort of something intuitive about having a big, large sparse vector, which says I have this input, like let's say I'm looking at a room or something like that, and mentally I'm creating attributes, but I'm not, I'm not giving that description of the room all the possible attributes I've ever seen. You know, There's only some subset of attributes that even makes sense to talk about for this room so i will give those attributes to be active and then everything else is not even pertinent so they're just zero features so it kind of naturally fits this thing where you know attributes could be things like it's colored blue or it has a rough texture or it's a it's an idea rather than a physical thing like you you can imagine all these different attributes or features that describe things that we interact with in the world and most things will only have a very small subset of attributes that are pertinent to them so sparse coding does that or sparse features do that where you zero most things because they're just not pertinent, and you only have the small number of attributes that describe your input. So having really big sparse vectors lets you have this big set of possible attributes, which I think is nice.
0: I was looking through like some of your more current research or research since the thesis, and like you mentioned, you've revisited or you've used this idea of sparsity in this continual learning setting. Did you maybe want to talk through this idea of the the idea that if you're doing continual learning, then you might want to accumulate knowledge versus like overwriting knowledge.
1: Right. Okay. Accumulate knowledge. I mean, maybe you're thinking of like forgetting and not. um...
0: Right, right, right.
1: Yes. Uh, I guess the idea is in an incremental, in an RL setting or an incremental setting, you're always forced to see data in certain kinds of chunks. Like I'm always going to be stuck updating in some part of the world and not updating with other parts in other parts of the world. So forgetting becomes a bigger problem in RL. And so you would hope if you had some kind of representation that um, ensures that when you're in one part of the world, other the features for other parts of the world are not active at all, then that means you're not even touching the predictions for that other part of the world. And in that sense, you can update as much as you want here, and you're not going to override any of the knowledge you have in the other parts of the world, because the feature sets are completely disjoint. Yeah, yeah. Now. That's- Maybe that's a bit of an excessive assumption if the feature sets are disjoint. So maybe there's some overlap, but if there, at least what you would hope is if there is overlap, then um, at least the overlap is for attributes, a small number of attributes, and those attributes actually probably hopefully are representative between those two parts of the world. Okay, so whereas otherwise, if you have like a dense, a dense feature vector, anytime you do updates of the neural network and then you have the last layer, everything is active, all the weights are going to change all of the time, every time you update it in, any, in this one part of the world, which means that you know very quickly, your neural network's going to start specializing to whatever it is that you see in this part of the world and is going to completely overwrite whatever it was that you saw in the other part of the world. So this, the way that you get around this in the regular supervised learning setting is you have a big batch of IID data, you're constantly sampling, so you're always sampling representative points from across the space and sort of balancing out your function approximator to make sure you care about everything. And in RL, we just don't have that. We're stuck always having some temporal uh, connections between the data that naturally give the most weight to recent things you've seen.
0: Yeah, and I, I think this might be one of the ideas Those in one of your talks is like, so you do an update, that'll affect the update then that will, uh, for the approx- approximation at another state. Then when you're collecting data using that learned policy, it'll then make an incorrect prediction
1: that's true. So we did talk a little bit extra about how it might even be a bigger problem in RL because you bootstrap off of your own values. So the
0: bootstrapping, yeah.
1: Yeah. If you overwrite some of the in RL, it's not just that you forget things that are in like your value function. You also use your value function as a target, so you sort of have this compounding problem where if you if you interfere with value estimates, then the next time you're in a state that's going to use those value estimates, then you're going to now be really impacting that state too. Anyway, there's a compounding problem because you're you're both interfering with your values that you use for control and you're interfering with the targets that you use to update your values.
0: And then another potential thing that I thought might be related to this is this project you did on the brain connectomes. Mm -hmm. Um, Because it seems like that involved sparsity and then also these like matrix factorization type methods.
1: Yeah. I mean, whenever you learn something, um, you can't help but use it you know so like I learned a bunch about matrix factorization I was chatting with this guy who's just my friend in neuroscience and he told me about his cool problem and I thought oh we could totally learn that and we can just use like matrix factorization to learn that and then then that led to multiple years of the difficult problem that is how do you take giant brain data which is like really quite big and then find a solution efficiently a sparse solution so the, there the question um was about you know, naturally the connections in the brain are very sparse. So this was like a dream sparse question about how do I take an input matrix that is brain data and then go and find this very sparse um, matrix that's going to, you know, this is way too much information about this very specific thing. But yes, because I knew quite a bit about matrix factorization, I kind of like matrix factorization, then it was just natural to say, oh, w- wow, what a hard problem. I should try to work on it
0: yeah that's really cool and and that's like one of the ideas that kind of motivated this podcast is like if you if you work for a really long time on a problem and then like years later you come to a new problem, does it still kind of stay with you in the back of your mind?
1: I hope so. I mean for me, I always feel like every year I'm learning more and there's always like way more to learn than I know. but I do feel like that uh the th- everything I have ever everything I learn ends up being pertinent at some point somehow. If nothing else, other than the fact that I'm like, oh, I heard about this thing before and it makes me go do a better literature survey or or whatever it is. So even though matrix factorization is not particularly relevant to RL, uh, even just insights and ideas from that area have, I think, helped me in other areas. Yeah. Knowledge accumulation is good, obviously. Yeah, yeah. But there are always way more to learn. It's not like I feel like I'm like reaching this plateau or I've learned all the things. Nope, there's just this hill and it continues. There's way more to learn.
0: Right, yeah. So I guess, yeah, humans, we, we also don't want to have catastrophic forgetting. <laughs> <laughs> and um, yeah, so then maybe we could move to this next session, uh, next section, which is kind of about semi-supervised learning. I thought this was interesting because here, the approach that you ultimately came up with here was able to have this property, which showed that like the representation improved if you used unlabeled data. And it just got me thinking about today when maybe it's not the exact same setup, but when we do like pre-training and then fine-tuning, I'm not sure whether those same guarantees are present. We kind of just use the empirical evidence, I guess. What do you think about this idea of, of like having a guarantee of improvement? Is that something we should be striving for today?
1: Um, okay, we'll just give you like a brief history with that semi-supervised thing. So in the thesis, I talked about how there's so these two strategies for semi-supervised learning um, and the one that we did we were able to say something about variance reduction like incorporating unlabeled data from just where you just had x and no y we were able to say that at least the strategy we were proposing um, didn't didn't cause variance increase or had some variance reduction guarantee something like that and then the other strategy for semi-supervised learning that's in the thesis is exactly doing this regular spectra thing where we're um, looking at X and Y jointly and refactorizing those things. Now, for that one, for that semi supervised strategy, we had no such guarantees. So, um, maybe one interesting thing from this point is we never, I never got to the bottom of why is that? Like, why is it that we were able to, with this other semi supervised approach, get this guarantee? And then for the one that people most commonly do, which is the one where we got the convex reformulation, why we had no such guarantees. Um, I've seen some really cool work from. Bernard Skolkoff, I that going kind to of say his last name, about um, about also semi-super- was it about semi-supervised learning. Oh, it was about causality. There's some really interesting connection to the direction of how you build these probabilistic models. Like, do you look at probability of Y given X or probability of X given Y? And you can say very different things about them theoretically. And I've always wondered, since seeing him talk about that, if that was somehow related to why in one semi-supervised case, which was in one direction... We were able to say something with variance reduction, and when we looked at semi-supervised learning in the other probabilistic direction, which is the convex reformulation reformulation stuff, we weren't able to say anything. Um, there's definitely a mapping there between causality in some way, but I've never I've never followed up on that.
0: Yeah, maybe someone listening will be interested in hopefully in finding that connection. If it's interesting to talk about, like what were the two differences between these settings and uh, the second setting? Maybe seemed closer to what we what has become common to do today, uh, this like idea of pre-training and then hoping that the pre-training on unlabeled data would improve performance on a small amount of labeled data.
1: Okay, so I guess one of the ways that it would be related is sort of the, I would think more even just about joint training. So the, I had brought up before the supervised autoencoder thing where if you were to jointly learn Y and X at the same time, then having um, having this X as like an auxiliary loss is sort of constraining your space And so it's a beneficial thing to have it there. Uh, And there has been some work on thinking about having these auxiliary losses where you have only that auxiliary part available, you don't always have the corresponding targets, and then you can still say something about sample efficiency improving. So in that sense, um, there is maybe some newer results looking at sample efficiency if you were to try to do this sort of like joint training where you take advantage of just some of the labels being available. In this case, the labels being actually the inputs, the X, which is very semi-supervised. But that is related to pre-training. I think pre-training is in some sense inherently different, because in in pre-training, you're going to start your model in some part of this. Pre-training to me, sorry, I should say, is about optimization. You start your model somewhere in the space, and then you let it keep going from there. So it's either going to, first of all, let you learn faster, like you're starting from somewhere less random, And it maybe starts you from somewhere better actually, so that both of those things would be good, but eventually you're gonna overwrite that pre-training. Whereas for a lot of these semi-supervised approaches, um, your solution is including that unlabeled data and you want it to stay around, to constrain your solution, usually so you generalize better with less data.
0: Maybe loosely speaking, do you think that this is connected with some of your current interests uh, related to representation learning?
1: Yeah, the se- so the semi-supervised learning stuff. Okay, one of the ways it's definitely connected is that we started off with like the unsupervised setting with just you know x and like sparse coding and whatever, and then we mm-hmm. realized well, we may also we could do these things jointly with x and y. That's where the semi-supervised part came in, um, and then when we did the x and y jointly, there was sort of this interesting thing to notice where, as usual, you're learning some features and. Um, it sort of led us to the, to investigate more of this thing we called supervised autoencoders, where we really were mm-hmm. thinking of that last layer as exactly the same thing that we were trying to do with this semi-supervised learning approach, which, which wouldn't have arisen if we were just talking about the unsupervised learning setting. So in that sense, the follow-up to the semi-supervised learning work, where we sort of jointly looked at X and Y and we co-embedded them, because really we were asking what are the factors that describe both of these at the same time? led us then to ask more, well, maybe we can think of these X as an auxiliary loss. And then really that last, the features in that last layer of the neural network are um, acting like the joint embedding for that X and Y. And then that's what led us to some work on supervised autoencoders that we talked about, that that we have a paper on in NeurIPS from like 2018 or something. Um, In essence, that was a follow-up work to
0: that. In general, what do you think about these regularized factor models today? Uh, Like in the future work, you mentioned wanting to say something stronger about using these models, I'm just quoting here, for promoting precise problem specification and for directing algorithmic development. Uh, so now, like, maybe a few years removed, do you think this would still be uh, like a promising framework for doing that? Or would you maybe consider something else?
1: Um, I won't say, One thing I'll say is that at, at least definitely right after my PhD, I did think of it as a promising thing. And then actually we tried a bunch of stuff with them. So, like... You know, we took neural net. One here's one very natural thing you could do. You can take a neural network and you can ask, well, what if uh, what if sparse coding can help us get really good features, like you know the sparse features? But one problem with it is that it's sort of hard to do imputation for new data, because you have to do this factorization. You're like you're you're always inherently saying, here's a matrix of data, go do a factorization. And now what do you do when you get a new data point? Um, There's some there's some important imputation questions that arise from that, like how do you figure out what the representation is for the new point? I won't go into why, but there is some important questions about that, whereas for a neural network, it's very straightforward. You give the neural network your X, it outputs whatever it is that you want it to output. So we kind of wanted to ask, can we take some of the nice properties of sparse coding, where we can go very carefully say, go find for me this sparse feature vector, and then you can constrain the regularizer, it's a clear optimization problem. So, we tried to use sparse coding to create feature vectors and then constrain our hidden layers in our neural network using the feature vectors produced by sparse coding. So, we could sort of get the best of both worlds, like encode the structure but still use the nice mutation properties of neural networks. Sometimes it did good things, other times it didn't do good things. In the end, the path forward was we should probably just use neural networks and use X as auxiliary loss, for example. So, we sort of tried different ways to incorporate the ideas from regular spectrum models into something like neural networks, which are. You know, more general purpose. They are very powerful, and um, and in general, didn't find yet anything particularly promising. So maybe the retrospective is there is lots. There is I think that there probably could be someone who would find very useful ideas from that community. And um, but some maybe more naive applications that I have tried didn't obviously give any kind of improvements. So I've sort of stopped trying. <laughs> this is my
0: retrospective. Mm-hmm. I see. Yeah. Yeah. But uh, yeah, I think we've we've still talked a lot about like um, like the value of all this, like spending time in those problems and then uh, that was really cool how it came up in that brain connectomes project.
1: So I do think that these models are still very pertinent to the scientific community. You know, David Blay, for example, David Bly has has done a lot of work on matrix factorization like models and is has been very important to psychologists and chemists and other people in the sciences that really need these kinds of models. So in that sense, they're still very pertinent. But now I work on AI and I want to find as powerful a function approximators as possible, and I want to find really good representations. So for that goal, it's not as clear to me now how it is that I could take those actual methods as they are and port them in. The insights will stay around with me forever, but the actual methods, I'm not sure how promising they are now for representation learning.
0: Yes. Yeah, so since the PhD, I think here and there throughout this conversation, uh, we've talked about maybe some p- papers here and there. We talked about how representation learning is maybe the unifying thing between what you work on now and, and what you worked on during your PhD. But could you just outline like the streams of, of research that you started working on?
1: Sure. Yeah, mostly my PhD it wasn't too many. It was mostly, you know, I worked on unsupervised learning, semi supervised learning. I worked a little bit on like variance reduction stuff in games. But then mostly the other thing I worked on was, um, was reinforcement learning. And the main reason I worked on reinforcement learning, literally completely in parallel, there was no overlap between the two things during my PhD, was simply because reinforcement learning was really big at the University of Alberta, where I did my PhD. So I sat in the reinforcement learning lab, and I then worked on reinforcement learning problems. So then I just ended up doing those two things completely in parallel.
0: And then nowadays, uh, what are some of the, like, how would you categorize the different things that you're interested in?
1: Um, so I guess like many people who work on AI questions, I'm interested in all the important AI questions. Like how do I get my agent to explore to gather data so that I can learn more about the world and how should the agent represent knowledge and how does it deal with partial observability? So how does it build up this representation that both summarizes the past and is a good form for making good predictions? You know, like going back to should it be sparse? Should it be dense? So like both of those kinds of questions, um, what kinds of objects should the agent learn to help it, uh, like take advantage of the data it's seen so far and learn as fast as possible in the future. So, like, you know, should the agent learn a model? What should the form of the model look like? Um, those are, those are maybe the primary questions I care about, like, you know, how does, how does an agent learn a representation in RL? How should it do exploration? And, um, and really, how do we do model-based RL? But more, but more, Um, with less of a constraint that the model be like the transition dynamics in RL, asking in in a more vague sense like what could the model be and how can the agent exploit a model? are I'd say the primary questions that I'm working on.
0: And then I I noticed like going through uh, your your talks and your papers that to me it seems like a common theme is this uh, continuous setting or incremental setting.
1: Yeah, continual learning, never-ending learning, cumulative learning. Yeah, those are all names for it.
0: Yeah, so is this like like your your main motivation is representation learning and then you just end up working on continual learning or is it the other way around? Like you use continual learning as a way of like finding good situations in which we need to learn good representations.
1: Right. Good question. Um, to me, the never ending learning problem is like the AI problem. The two things are not really different from each other because I think most of our agents, it, it always makes sense that we would allow our agents to adapt online. So that, and that is the never ending learning problem. So since that's the problem I care about, then the next question is now, how do I solve that problem? And of course, in order to solve that problem, the agent has to build up a representation. So since I know I'm always in the never ending learning setting, I'm always asking how do I learn a representation online? How do I learn a representation when the data has a strong correlation amongst it? So in that sense, the sub questions I ask, I may not always say, this paper is about never ending learning, but the sub questions are almost always in a framework like the online learning setting, let's say keeping in mind that I care about the never-ending learning scenario.
0: Yeah, for, for never-ending learning, um, maybe to like connect it with some of the other episodes, um, Like we had Ken Stanley on, and he was talking about this idea of open-endedness. Uh, he had some work where the like environment itself is changing so that it gets more and more challenging. And then when, when Chelsea Finn was on, we were talking kind of just like one of these philosophical questions about meta-meta learning, Uh, so you might have meta learning, but then you have like this time scale level learning. And we were just talking about how the current environments that we use for reinforcement learning don't support that kind of learning. We need something more complicated. Uh, so to turn this into a question, like one question I had is, do you have a sense of what sort of environments we should be using for this never ending learning problem? Or is it possible to just use like simple synthetic environments that kind of get the essence of the problem.
1: Yeah. I mean, I would love if someone were to release really nice never ending learning environments, I think it's starting to happen. Like more people are are spending time thinking about the, what kind of environments to release. Um, but the, the usual strategy I take, I guess is because we don't have any good never ending learning or many, we don't have any that I can think of easily never ending learning environments then I always still try to make sure I keep in mind I care about the never-ending learning problem and then design little small synthetic problems that are testing the thing that I want to test so that, you know, eventually in deployment, if I wanted to deploy an agent, then uh, I'm still testing the properties that I want for that algorithm to have. But and then in another sense, we do already have never-ending learning environments, and that's just the real world. It's just that it's really hard to test things in RL in the real world. But technically, if you're testing things on robots that like, you know, let's say there's a robotics lab where there's a robot that drives around and interacts with people and such, but that is a never ending learning setting. Um, I don't want to robots, but like, let's, let's say that I think there are already natural, the the natural environments we see in the world are never ending environments. But now if we want to create little simulated problems that mimic that, that's sort of already you've heard me say that That's that's almost an inherently difficult thing because the natural world is very complex, and then we're trying to create a simulated environment that's complex like the natural world, it's very difficult. But you know what's maybe a little bit more reasonable is to keep the natural world in mind and then design our little small synthetic problems to tease apart particular questions so that we're more confident about the algorithms we deploy in the natural world. Now if someone could actually produce a simulator that allowed us to test our never-ending agents now, that'd be awesome too. That would be good. I'm just saying it's kind of an inherently difficult problem. I think there's are a reason they don't exist.
0: And then the other thing that that comes up is like this idea of exploration. So maybe it's too general of a of a question, but it seems like in this never-ending setting, exploration is maybe different because you're not just trying to optimize the reward at the end of a single episode, and you like explore in the name of of doing that. Um, it seems like these ideas of like novelty or interestingness come up? And that was another thing that Ken and I were talking about is like, is novelty the the right thing to do for this kind of uh, open-ended setting? And then how do we quantify that? So I don't know, do these types of things come up in the problems that, that you work on? And do you have any thoughts about them?
1: Yeah, I do have thoughts about them. I haven't worked as much on exploration as I could have worked on exploration, but I do have this recent Jair paper about Um, intrinsic motivation and understanding the different rewards you can use for intrinsic motivation, like what kinds of behaviors Mm. does it induce? Um, Because like like you said, the ideas of novelty or like intrinsic motivation are out there as a strategy to do exploration. And they sort of seem to mimic real agents more. So maybe they kind of intuitively feel like a nice thing. Um, Anyway, I will say that uh, the episodic problem setting to me isn't a real problem setting. It's sort of a strong statement I'm saying right now, but and most of our agents are really in a continuing setting. And maybe they have episodic problems that they face. Like maybe, for example, they make subtasks even for themselves. I'm going to go walk to the door. It's like an episode. But the problem they're actually in is the one of living in this world, which is a continuing problem. So um, I agree that exploration and episodic problems is very different from exploration and continuing problems. And we should care about exploration and continuing problems because that's maybe the more common true setting. Even though we generally do episodic problems because it's easier to tackle um okay then when it comes to expiration in those settings i am a strong believer actually that in general agents will be in these environments where the reward is relatively sparse like you know you have to wait hours until you get like really hungry or something like that and then in the interim when there's not as much of an obvious what should the agent do from an external stimuli like i'm hungry there's all this ability just to spend time learning and so that's where you would want to have the kinds of rewards that are learning progress rewards you know I, i'm i did this action i learned something about the world and that was rewarding so we don't often call that like an external reward you might call that an intrinsic reward but whatever you want to call it um it's natural to think about exploration where agents are, are constantly taking actions to learn as much about the world as possible so one of my un, unsubstantiated views but I would like something I would really love to test one day is to ask the question, if you had an agent that had um, rewards based on learning progress. So like it's it's actually every time it takes an action and learns something about the world, it gets rewarded for that. Would that be enough almost to help us solve the exploration question?
0: Mm.
1: That um, If the agent sort of just greedily tries to learn about the world around it and maximize the reward that it sees as well would that sort of dense reward signal be enough that it would already do a reasonably good job of exploring in the world? And uh, and I think we already have an agent that we know of that kind of does that. And I think we sort of do that. You know, we have these learning progress rewards built into ourselves. We like to learn as humans, and it seems to be a pretty good way for us to take actions in our world. And like I said, unsubstantiated, but anyway.
0: Yeah, but those are the important things, I think, for driving uh, like the new directions. Do you have any sense of, like how would you define this idea of learning progress?
1: Sure, Um, well, I guess I'm always sort of implicitly assuming the agent has to learn some model about the world because it's gonna then use that model to learn faster in the future. So like it could be transition dynamics model, maybe it could just be a collection of predictions about the future that that it uses to improve its action selection right now. So let's imagine that it has this collection of predictions, then the learning progress rewards would look something like, I took this action, all of the predictions I'm making about the future, I get to actually see, was I right or was I wrong? So I made a prediction, I was either right or I was wrong, and um, and, and that's gonna tell you something about, oh, actually I shouldn't say, was I right or was I wrong? Did I improve how right I was or did I decrease how right I was? So if taking an action, you saw some information and it, it made you learn something so that improved your prediction accuracy, then uh, that would be like something like a learning progress reward. So something related to prediction accuracy. Now there's much more nuance to it, of course, because you don't want to be chasing stochasticity and all that kind of stuff. Uh, so so a lot of the intrinsic rewards that are defined are trying to imitate something like information gain. you would like to say independent of the stochasticity. Did the information I just get increase, um, like increase how much I know about this? Like, did it reduce my uncertainty?
0: Yeah, that's really interesting. That, that does seem like a powerful idea. It, like is exploration actually just a matter of optimizing? I guess this learning progress. I guess we've gone through like the past, we've gone through the PhD, and the present. So like looking forward, um, is there anything that we haven't mentioned that you're excited about?
1: I'm excited about lots of things. I'm, ex- I'm really excited about planning right now. But that's just the thing about how do you do model-based RL. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm also very excited about the representation learning question, but when it comes to partial observability. So essentially, how do you learn RNNs in an RL setting is a pretty open question. So I'm pretty excited about that one. It's a hard question.
0: And then, you know, speaking of hard questions, it seems like the hardest question on the show is always about advice. But I try to close the interview usually with like one piece of advice. And it could be just something that comes to mind that was like a useful thing that you found throughout your your research career to maybe someone who's getting started or just starting a PhD? Uh, does anything come to mind?
1: Hmm, I have, I'll, I actually, I give advice a lot and I like giving advice. Now, what's like one particular piece of advice? Um, I guess the one piece of advice I usually like to give is research is about, is, is so much more fun when you're collaborative and so much more effective when you're collaborative. And what I mean by that is, you know, there's always this push to do interdisciplinary things. I don't necessarily mean that. I just mean when you're starting in research, don't don't narrow yourself too much. Be open to working on hard problems. So if someone's working on a hard problem and you have some useful skills to help out that person, like let's say they're theoretically oriented and you're really good at experiments, maybe they want to run some experiments, jump on that project, offer your help, learn something about that topic. Um, It'll benefit you in the end. So I like to encourage people when they start not to narrow too much and just sort of be open to working on many things and helping others with their work as well. And be open in the other direction the same way. Be open to having someone jump on on your project as well.
0: Yeah. So being open.
1: Yeah, it's a good way to be productive, and it's a good way to learn a bunch, which is sort of your main goals in your in your PhD.
0: Well, yeah. Thanks. Thanks so much for doing this. It was it was really fun to go back, and this was, um, I think, like one of the really interesting episodes, and like a motivation for doing this podcast where you worked on this really interesting problem during your PhD. Uh, and now it's kind of spread into an, another set of problems. But it seems like there's some some things that have that are still connected, and some of the problems that you work on still stay with you today. So thanks. Yeah.
1: thanks, thanks for inviting me.